healthcare is broken, and the healthcare industry is not going to fix itself. Reconstructing Healthcare is a podcast series where we interview the rebel entrepreneurs working tirelessly to disrupt the health insurance marketplace. Join us as we break down everything that's wrong with the current healthcare system and provide you with a blueprint to create better results. Now, here's your host, Michael Maneri. Well, hello, this is Michael Maneri, and I want to welcome everyone to the Reconstructing Healthcare podcast. Uh, today, our guest is Marshall Allen, a healthcare journalist with ProPublica. Marshall, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me here. You bet. You bet. So here's the game plan. What we seek to do here on the show is educate our audience on non-traditional methods to either lower their healthcare costs or improve value for their employees. Sound like something you want to help with? Yes. All right. So Marshall, I've, I've had you on the show before. And so I'm sure some of our listeners are familiar with your work, but uh, I'm still going to read a brief bio about you for those that you know aren't familiar with you. And then we'll jump into the interview. Sound good? Yeah. All right. So Marshall Allen is the author of a new book titled Never Pay the First Bill and Other Ways to Fight the Healthcare System and Win. Marshall is also a journalist that investigates why we pay so much for healthcare in the United States and get so little in return. He is one of the creators of ProPublica's Surgeon Scorecard, which published the complication rates for about 17,000 surgeons who perform eight common elective procedures. Uh, his work has been honored with several journalism awards, including the Harvard Kennedy School's 2011 Goldsmith Prize for Investigative Reporting, and coming in as a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for Local Reporting for Work at the Las Vegas Sun, where he worked before coming to ProPublica in 2011. Before he was in journalism, Alan spent five years in full-time ministry, including three years in Nairobi, Kenya, and he has a master's degree in theology. Anything else, uh, Marshall, that uh, I missed there that you want to mention? No, but I, I will I will add one thing. We actually, our work at ProPublica was honored as a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for our coverage of the COVID-19 pandemic. And so I was a part of that. It was a team collective effort at ProPublica. And I encourage people, um, if they're not familiar with ProPublica, please check us out. Uh, we do great investigative journalism. I would agree with that. I would agree with that. Marshall, you just released your first book. Congratulations. What a great Thank accomplishment, you, you know, it's especially, you. I mean, that's no small feat holding down a day job and managing a busy, you know, family life with, with kids. So, so let's start with your why. What motivated you to write the book in the first place? Well, that's a great question. And thank you so much. It was such an honor for me to write the book. And I had so much fun writing it. It was like delightful every step of the way, even though I was spending nights and weekends and holidays and, and all my time off working on this book. But I wrote, I wrote it because I get emails every day. I get phone calls almost every day from patients who are completely getting screwed by our healthcare system. Mm -hmm. And you know, I filter them as a journalist to try and see which ones might be stories that I could that I could cover. But the reality is a ProPublica story takes weeks or even months to complete. And there is no way I could get to all of these stories. So I see this huge need where people are being taken advantage of financially. And unfortunately, what's happened is that we have a system where it's become okay to exploit people's sickness for profit in American healthcare. And it's really not okay to do that. You mentioned my, my ministry background. So I spent five years in full-time ministry. So I look at this as a moral issue. I look at yeah. this as right and wrong. And I think it's okay to make a profit. You know, people should be paid fairly for the work that they do. And we want to incentivize innovation. We want to incentivize excellence. But what's happened is we've had a lot of middlemen and other parties insert themselves in between the doctors and the nurses and the other clinicians who are caring for patients. And they've, they've marked things up. They've each taken their cut, often in really deceptive ways, which I've been documenting over the last 15 years I've spent investigating healthcare. And so we have a situation, we're not talking about fair profit, we're talking about profiteering based on someone's sickness. And so I have this drive inside of me when I see things that are wrong to expose them, to call them out, and then also to point people in the right direction. So that, that's one reason I wrote it. All the emails I've been getting. Love it. But another reason I wrote it is because I have been talking to people about solutions over the years of my investigative reporting. So I always write an investigative story. I highlight a big problem. I try and expose it in a very hopefully interesting way. 
Mm-hmm. Often I'm highlighting the absurdities in our healthcare system and, and, and frankly, sort of mocking them and making fun of them and pointing them out for the ludicrous thing that they are. As and you should, and, as you should. <laughs> yeah, as we should, right? But I'm also trying to point people to somebody who's doing it the right way, whether it's a, a vendor or an employer or an individual who's found a fair way to do it. And so I've learned in doing this work that there are a lot of employers and vendors and other PBMs, TPAs, all these other folks in the industry who are doing things in a fair way, in a transparent way, in a way where they make a fair profit, but they're not engaging in unethical profiteering. And so there's this spectrum of behavior in the system. And right now, most of the employer-sponsored health plans seem to be engaging with vendors and insurance companies and hospitals and others who are exploiting them through deceptive schemes. And what I'm trying to do is show them, hey, look, there are people doing this in a different way. They're not looking at this problem the same old, same old way. And they are saving 30, 40% off of the bottom line for their healthcare benefits cost while delivering better benefits for their employees. So they're saving 30 or 40% while eliminating deductibles, coinsurance costs in some cases, premiums are being lowered. I mean, this is a huge, huge win for employers and for working Americans. And yet so many people are still doing it the old way. Right. So I'm, I'm really trying to spur things along by educating people about way, the way the system works so that it can be transformed in a way that's better for working Americans in particular. I love it. And, and that's one of the things we try to do here too, is, you know, provide that, that education for, you know, alternative ways to do things. Yes. I love, I love your podcast, by the way. I listen to it all the time. I'm a big fan and I have learned a ton from your podcast. So I really appreciate all the work you do to do the podcast. Absolutely. Well, it takes, it takes a village, Marshall. One quote that resonated with me in the book was, you know, the healthcare system isn't broken. Rather, the business side of healthcare was designed to exploit both clinicians and patients. And I thought that was such a a powerful truth that doesn't get talked about a lot, especially exploiting clinicians, right? I mean, you know, you've reported on on sort of the wrongs that have been happening to patients, but the fact that clinicians are being exploited in this system is, is true as well. So do you want to comment on some of the examples that you highlight in the book about how we are being taken advantage of, you know, by the healthcare system? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you could start in any number of ways, but how about just the simple fact that it's still very difficult to get prices upfront yes. for the services you receive? Yes. So I'm trying to reframe this. So I know that in the healthcare industry, they say you don't get the price until it runs through your insurance plan and everything else. So this has become normal, right? It's normalized deviance though. This yes. is, this is yes. the normalization of a deviant practice, not a healthy practice. And now we have the hospital price transparency rule that the federal government enacted that went into effect at the beginning of this year where hospitals are required to post their prices by the federal government. They have to post the cash price, the Medicare price, all the prices they've negotiated with individual insurance plans for for the services that they provide. This is supposed to be easy to find in a spreadsheet on their websites. And I know because I've checked, many hospitals are not complying. So they are in violation of federal rules by not posting this. Right. And those that are, it is a real eye-opener when you see the, the huge price variation that patients have when they go to the hospital. Let me give you a great example. So I've been helping more patients as I've been working on this book because I'm trying to practice what I preach a little bit, right? I'm telling people, right. I'm equipping you, I'm empowering you. Well, so now I'm like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna walk alongside some of these folks and help them with this process. So I got emailed last November by a young woman here in New Jersey who went to an emergency room because she had sliced her finger. And so she needed three stitches. Yep. We were able to look on the hospital website and thankfully they were complying with the hospital price transparency rule. So they had posted their rates. It was astonishing when you looked at those rates because for her level three emergency room visit, United Healthcare, which I don't need to introduce the behemoth United Healthcare, hundreds of billions of dollars a year in revenue. So we trust United Healthcare 
to be our advocate to get us a good deal. They get us these discounts off the charge master rates, right? Mm -hmm. Well, her discount on the level three emergency room visit amounted to $5,805. That was the negotiated discount just for that level three ER visit. $5,800 discount. So the build charge was a lot higher than that. The build charge was like 13 grand. (laughs) And by the way, this was upcoded. This should have been a level one emergency room visit. This was not a complex visit. So this was already upcoded. United Healthcare, of course, doesn't look to see if things are upcoded. Its price was $5,805, okay? Now, the other prices, the Blue Cross price was a little over $700. But if you were on Blue Cross, you would have paid 700-ish. If you were on Medicare, you would have paid $230. And if you were paying cash as an uninsured patient for that particular CPT code, it was $256. That's unbelievable. Unbelievable. So in other words, if this young woman who's early on in her career would have been uninsured, she would have had a cash price of 256 for that exam. Instead, United Healthcare's discounted price was $5,805. So her plan paid 3100 She got on the hook for 2700 So then they're coming after her for $2,700 when they would take 767 or whatever from Blue Cross and Blue Shield. So this is this is a fundamental injustice yeah. that is built into our system and it's been secret. And I think this is why these hospitals don't want to post their prices. And I know they can post prices. It's not that complicated. And, and let's let's talk about the two guilty parties in this scenario for a second. First of all, the hospital upcoded it from a level one to a level three, right? I mean, that is a classic tactic, right? That a lot of, you know, providers and hospitals will employ to try to maximize their revenue. And yet you trust the insurance company, I'd say guilty party too, to make sure that the charges are accurate. So shame on the hospital for doing that. But two, yeah, in healthcare, you're supposed to be looking out for the employer who's actually paying premiums for that. And you just let it go. Right. Well, so we're that's, getting that's at another, another one of my fundamental reasons that we need to fight back that I mentioned in Never Pay the First Bill is that in America, we know that the customer is always right. But in the American healthcare system, the employer and the employee are not the most important customer. So the, the insurance company does not look at the employer and the member as their most important customer. The insurance company's loyalty is to the hospital and the doctor who are submitting those claims. They need them to be in their networks. They look the other way when upcoding occurs because frankly, it's not that insurance company's money. Even if it's a fully insured plan, they're just taking in money from the members and the employers. Mm -hmm. And they're using that money to dole out the care and keeping a cut for themselves. They actually make more money as healthcare costs rise, because they're just taking a percentage for their administration and profit. And it's even worse with self-funded plans. So most working Americans are in self-funded plans, as you and your audience, I'm sure know. Well, then it's the employer's money. And by the way, it's also, it's actually the employee's compensation that's being used for all this. Okay. So it's funded by the employer, but that compensation actually belongs to each of those employees. And so when that compensation gets sucked out by these United Healthcare ridiculous rates or by them failing to catch up coding, there's less money available in that compensation pool to fund the employees' wages. So economists have studied this and shown that a large reason we've had wage suppression over the past 20 years in the United States is due to the high, unjustifiably high cost of healthcare. And so I'm trying to help people understand. I, I, in 15 years now of, of digging deep on these issues, mm-hmm. I have talked to every party. I've talked to hundreds of patients. I've talked to scores of benefits advisors and employers. I've talked to hundreds of doctors, nurses, other frontline clinicians. I've talked to insurance executives. I have verified all these things. And so what I'm saying is not an exaggeration. It's very objective and it's very fair to say the system is not set up for the benefit of the paying customers, the employers and the employees. It's set up for the benefit of the stakeholders, mm-hmm. for them to enrich themselves. And they do provide healthcare in return. But on the business side, it's not set up 
for the benefit of the public. And it never has been. And so now we have 20 years or more of data where we can look at the trend, okay? Mm -hmm. And we can see this pattern. And if you don't look at this pattern and decide to do something different, then I'm sorry, you're a fool or you're a sucker (laughs) or you just don't care, right? I mean, at a certain point, in fact, one of the interesting things, you're a benefits advisor, right? So I had to weigh in this book how hard I should be on employers because employers have been passing these costs onto their employees in the form of high deductibles, higher premiums, and, and reduced coverage. It was, it was a tough thing to do because I have three chapters in the book for employers. So the employers are part of my audience. I want to be winsome to the employers. And I actually think in the end, I talked to lots of benefits advisors and I asked them all, I said, how hard should I be on the employers in my book? Every benefits advisor I talked to said, you should hammer the employers because <laughs> they should know better by now. And in my book, I will say, I think I was actually quite gentle with the employers. And I, I, I want to be... I want I to be empathetic. Are. Yeah. I, They're I trying think... to run a business. They're too trusting maybe of some of them. I want to be gentle and understanding with them, but I want to spur them along, you know, to stop doing things the same way. Yeah. No, I, I think change is hard, especially when you've been doing it so long. And look, you know, a certain degree of fault lies within the brokerage consulting community because it could be ignorance, misaligned incentives. Yeah right? For, for not providing education about alternatives to the status quo. Plenty of blame to be shared. <laughs> yeah. And change, and change is hard. I want to be sympathetic to that. But part of my strategy with the book is to increase the health literacy for employees and employers so that they can see that they, they can work together to fix this problem. And I think it does have to be a partnership where the employees and the employers have to work together and say, we're not going to do things the same way. We're going to transform this by doing things in a different way and saving a lot of money. And I know you know that it's possible and and other people are already doing it. So there there is a lot of hope. Yeah, no, I think there is. And I I think health literacy is is the right way to frame it. And so getting back to, you know, some of the things you talk about, I think the first part of the book is health literacy for employees, right? right. Or, or consumers. And, you know, one of the things, Hey, this is in your title, right? Never pay the, the first bill. So right. let's talk about that. I mean, in, in your research, how common is it that, you know, pe- the, the bills that people get are going to have errors in it? Well, I've looked into this and there's never been a real unbiased study of errors in medical bills that I've seen. But people who review medical bills for a living will tell you that most of them contain errors. And I can just tell you anecdotally from looking at my own family's bills that it's frequent to see errors, but it's anecdotal, you know? Um, But I can tell you right now, my family just had to get five COVID tests because we got kind of hit with the virus. And one of the bills was completely wrong. So four of them, we have five people in our family. The four of them were processed correctly. But my wife's bill, they put an inaccurate diagnosis on it for acute respiratory distress syndrome. And that was a wrong diagnosis. And so that cost got passed on to us in the form of a bill. I had to call the insurance company and I had to tell them this was not processed right. This is not the right diagnosis. They corrected it. And so we didn't end up getting that bill, but it's very common. And I have a lot of examples in the book of, of errors and bills. So I think it's very common, but I don't know. What do you think that, that I think it's extraordinarily high. I don't think it gets caught a lot. And I do think that, you know, providers, I don't want to say providers themselves, but it's the people who work in the billing department and the finance department who are trying to maximize revenue. I think upcoding is extremely common. And I think the challenge is, which you mentioned in the book, is that people just pay the bill, right? Yes. I think upcoding is the most common type of fraud there is. In fact, I think almost every bill that I have seen has some form of upcoding. Yeah. And it's just not extremely common. It's extremely common. And I don't think people are are educated on, you know, what to do about it. So I think that was a a really good aspect of of the book is, is providing people with, with education on what to do. One of the things you mentioned is that, you know, one in six Americans have medical debt in collections, which is astounding. So tell us a little bit more about what you learned about the medical debt collecting industry and, and, and tips for how people should be, you know, approaching this if they're sent to medical collections? Well, sadly, I think these numbers are going up in large part because of the high deductible health plans, right? Where now 
the typical American family might have about $400 in their bank account. People don't have a lot of savings to handle these large medical bills. And now they're being put on health plans where the deductible is $1,000, $5,000, even $10,000 that they have to pay out of pocket before the coverage kicks in. And, and at that point, it's not, it's not health insurance. <laughs> no, you're effectively uninsured except for something catastrophic. So I wrote a chapter about how to handle the medical debt collector when he or she comes calling. You know, in a dark way, your leverage improves once you've been sent to collections. <laughs> but you just have to know who it is that you owe, because it might be the hospital that has sent mm -hmm. you to collections. In that case, if it's a debt collector working on behalf of the hospital, you can still negotiate with the hospital billing department. And at that point, if they sent you to collections, then you know that they have probably given up a lot of hope in getting money from you. And so you might be able to enter a greatly reduced payment arrangement in that situation. In other cases, they've sold your debt to a debt buyer. And then the person pursuing you for the debt is working on behalf of that debt buyer. Then the hospital's out of the equation. You're, you're on to a different party, but your leverage increases a lot then too. And the, the expert I talked to, Jerry Ashton, who's the founder of the charity RIP Medical Debt, mm -hmm. he said that you should be able to get about an 85% discount off the list price of your debt, because those debt buyers buy debt for pennies on the dollar. Right. So if you owe $100, they're buying your debt for maybe $5 max. So if you can get that down to 15% of the total that you owe, then the debt buyer will have a win, they make a profit, mm -hmm. and you'll have a win by getting a discount. The most important thing I just wanna point out though, for dealing with medical debt, dispute it in writing, do not ignore any call from a medical debt collector. And I have templates in my book that people can use to fill in the blanks, to send to a debt collector to say, I dispute this. You need to prove that I owe this money. And my fundamental assumption, because of all the upcoding and all the errors and overcharges on medical bills, is that that debt is not a fair price to begin right. with. It's and so I think it needs to be disputed. It needs to be done in writing. And then if you find that you do have a fair price that you owe, then you can enter that negotiation. It was a good chapter and, and I appreciated sort of the, the education, you know, for, for how, to, how to approach it. In another chapter, you, you talk a little bit about examples about wage garnishment and hospitals suing patients, which is just awful. But you have a chapter in here that discusses how to sue a medical provider or facility for an unfair bill. And so give us a little color on, on this, as I think it's an approach that many people wouldn't even contemplate because it just sounds too hard and, and too expensive. So, so what, what is the reality of, of, of doing that? It's actually a lot easier than you think. And it takes a lot less time. It's not, it's not expensive and you don't need an attorney. Now, what it is, is it's stressful because you don't actually know what's going to happen. Mm. But I think that the greatest secret weapon we have against surprise medical bills and all these other unfair, exorbitant, error-ridden bills is small claims court. And I walk people through how to deal with a medical bill in the book, step by step. First, you need to get an itemized medical bill. Yeah. So you have the detailed list of charges. You need to make sure it includes the billing codes. The hospital may, maybe won't give you those billing codes, but you can always get those from your insurance plan. If you're insured, mm -hmm. that's one thing the customer service people at insurance companies are great at, telling you the charges and telling you the codes. They'll give you that in five minutes over the phone. Yep. Then you can look up, first of all, make sure that those charges actually were for services that were provided to you, because often they're not. So those you'd want to dispute. If any of those individual items you did not receive, dispute it. And then second, make sure they're fairly priced. So again, because of the hospital price transparency rule, you can look on hospital websites to see prices. And I would argue that you should get the lowest price. I don't say, oh, you're covered by United Healthcare. So United negotiated a extremely high payment between you and the hospital, so you have to pay it. Yeah, no. no. If, the, if the consumer was not part of the negotiated price, the consumer is not obligated to pay an exorbitant price negotiated by someone else. There's a legal doctrine in the book I talk about called the open price contract rule. And with an open price contract, if a price is not given to you up front, it is assumed under the law that the price will be a fair price. And so I would say a fair price is what Medicare pays, for instance. That seems yeah. fair to me. If they take the Medicare rate, 
why would I need to pay more just because I'm a working American under age 65? Yeah. So you price these things out using hospital websites. I also recommend people go to Mm fairhealthconsumer.org, which is a website that it's a nonprofit that has gathered all of the insurance payments for different zip codes and then made it searchable, put it in a database. So you can look up that, that CPT billing code, or you can look up by description and you can see what the fair prices would be. So you can see if you're being overcharged. If you're being overcharged, you want to sue them for the amount of the overcharge. Take that Medicare rate and whatever they're demanding extra from you, you can sue them for that amount. And when you sue them, the small claims court limits are actually quite high in a lot of states. It costs about $30 to file a case. It's not expensive. You don't even have to write a long narrative when you file the case. You name the party that's billing you as the defendant And you've already gathered your evidence. You have your itemized bill. I show in the book how to get your medical records. So that's also very helpful. You've you've found a fair price estimate. It might even be from their own hospital website where they show what what Medicare patients pay. Mm -hmm. So you've gathered all your evidence. You're ready. You could go to court right now and you could show the judge, hey, this is how I was overpriced and I don't think I should pay this. Now think what happens on their end when they get this lawsuit. Well, now they're accountable to our justice system which has set up small claims court to empower individual consumers to protect themselves against predatory institutions that are taking advantage of them. So now they've got to hire an attorney. The attorney, I talked to an attorney who deals with these kind of cases. He said he estimated it would take 10 to 15 hours of an attorney's time to defend a small case lawsuit filed by a patient. This is at hundreds of dollars an hour. Right. So it's going to cost that hospital thousands of dollars to defend themselves in small claims court against you, the individual consumer, for a case that might be worth hundreds, it might be worth thousands. It's not worth their money to defend this thing. So what you're doing is you're giving them the incentive they need to come to the table and settle this fairly with you. You probably won't even have to go to court. In fact, the intention is not to go to court. The intention is to leverage the power of our justice system to give them the incentive to treat us with the fairness that we deserve. And this this hasn't been done before a lot, but I have talked to a lot of people, patient advocates and individual patients who have done it. I highlight their stories in the book. I show people how it can be done. And all it takes is for the courage for people to stand up and say, I'm not going to let you bully me anymore. And now that I know I'm being bullied and I can document it, it's unjustifiable what they've been doing to us. And so once we start pushing back like this, I think we don't even need that many patients to do it. I mean, think if 1% of the patients getting screwed were to file cases in small claims court, we would have millions of cases being filed every year. It would not be in the hospital's best interest to continue to treat us this way. So I, I think we just have to equip and empower the American public And that's what I'm trying to do with my book. And I know people will say, oh, well, people will never do this. Well, you know what? Some people will. Some some people will. Some people will. And I I will tell you, not healthcare related, but had something happen to my car. My car basically just died after the warranty ran out. And um, I had a car that should have been worth, you know, 20 grand and it was worth zero. And I'd been thinking about doing small claims court. But after reading your book, I was like, you know what? I need to go do this because it's, there's no way, again, it's not a healthcare related item, but there's yeah. no way that, that my car should be worth zero after five, five years. Right. That's and- right. This, this is, I mean, this is our constitutional right as Americans and we just haven't been educated about how to use it. And it hasn't been applied to healthcare, but think about some hospital that's sending surprise bills to everybody. Right. In fact, I talked to this employer-sponsored plan the other day, and this employer has a reference-based pricing plan, mm-hmm. and the hospital in town doesn't like it. Yes. So the hospital is sending balanced bills to all these employees. Mm-hmm. So I offered to the employer, now, you know, there's a risk with this, right? You're, 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 you're taking it to the next level, but I go, look, this is fair, right? You're not being fair with the way you're treating me. But I said, well, look, what would happen if we did a Zoom call where all your employees who are interested in filing small claims cases back against that hospital, every surprise bill is met with a lawsuit in return. Do you think that would stop the surprise billing problem? I think that it would. I think that it would. Because it would be, 
it would be so expensive to send these stupid, unjustified, immoral surprise bills to patients that you think that anesthesiologist who's out of network is going to hit you with an unfair bill again? Again, they can bill us fairly. We're paying, we're willing to pay our bills. But what you can't do is exploit us by jacking up that price being out of network so high that it's just something where there's no ceiling on it. Right. And so it's almost like jujitsu, you know, where that, that aggression that's pointed toward you is returned and turned back on the aggressor. That's really what I'm talking about here. And I think, I think it's a game changer. I'm excited to hear victory stories from people who start doing this. And by the way, I encourage people, if you have a victory, my website is marshallallen.com. I want people to share your stories with me. I want to document these victory stories because I, I want people to see that it's possible to fight back and win. And people are already doing it. It's just that it hasn't become mainstream yet. And I want to, I want to take it national. I love it. I love it. Well, I think you've given me, I think, some motivation and courage to take some action. So thank you for the, uh, the encouragement there. The um, other thing is, what do you have to lose, right? No, nothing. But in, even well, in my, if, you, if you lose in small claims court, you're just going to have to pay the bill that they're already telling you you have to pay. Right. Exactly. And at this point, there's no bill for me just because I have a car that's worth nothing. But I think it is intimidating because I've never done it before. Yeah. Right? Anything that you haven't done before can be intimidating. So there's so, also a really good guide that I want to refer to people. It's called Everybody's Guide to Small Claims Court. Okay. And it's it's published by NOLO, N-O-L-O. Okay. Um, and I, I'm pretty sure that's the name of the title. I'll look it up and we can put it in the show notes. Perfect. Because this is a consumer guide to small claims court, everything you would need to know about it. So I think you would benefit from reading it. It'll definitely make you feel um, equipped book has three parts, right? The second part moves into talking about how to avoid unfair bills in the first place and really focuses on unnecessary care. And again, we talked about this being financially exploited by hospitals and providers. So you want to talk a little bit about this, about how to avoid some of these things in the first place? Yeah. So the first section of the book looks at if you're being, you're in the heat of the moment, you got hit with a bill or you've got a debt collector coming after you, you have to defend yourself against something an immediate attack. The next, the second section is about avoiding the need to fight by being a savvy consumer, avoiding price gouging. So mm-hmm. I talk about the price variation that exists, which we've talked about a little bit already. Yep. So if you know in advance that you might pay 80,000 at one hospital for a knee replacement, and you might pay 20,000 at a hospital across town, or you might pay or $5,000 for an MRI at a hospital-based imaging center, but an independent imaging center will give you the same MRI for hundreds of dollars instead of thousands. I mean, this price variation is everywhere. Everywhere. And people don't really assume that because you wouldn't think that that would be the case. It just doesn't make sense. But again, it's an example of the system using deception to take more of our money than it should. Mm-hmm. And so when people can see that price variation, then they can start steering themselves toward the lower priced providers who still provide excellent quality. In fact, studies have shown there is not a relationship between cost and quality in healthcare. So it's not like you're getting a luxury automobile or a beautiful mansion as opposed to a shack. You're getting the same thing. And I've, I've documented this like when we did our surgeon scorecard project We analyzed complication rates for surgeons all over the country for common elective procedures. Mm -hmm. You can get a great elective operation at a community hospital, at an inner city public hospital, and at a fancy hoity-toity marquee brand name medical center. So avoiding price variation is one thing. And then avoiding unnecessary care is huge. Yes. I mean, experts, again, study this. They estimate that maybe 25% of all the medical care provided in the United States is unnecessary. So I talk about what are the key questions we should ask our doctor or our other nurse practitioner or whoever before we undergo medical care. And I I think the number one question that I think is the most important one to ask, what happens if we wait? So, okay, doctor, you tell me I need this MRI right now. You tell me I need this operation right now. You tell me I need to be put on this medication right now. Well, it might be true. I mean, maybe you should be put on it. So I'm not saying you should discount it, but ask your doctor, what happens if we don't do it right now? What's my risk? Am I going to walk out of here right now and drop dead if we don't do this? 
am I going to have something growing inside me that we're not going to know what happens? It doesn't always have to be done right now on the spot. There might be time for you to step away. There might be less risk by stepping away. You can consult other materials to study the issue. You can get second opinions. So ask your doctor what happens if I wait next time they're offering that type of discretionary care. And then the other place I really urge people to go is to the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force. They are the only independent body of experts in the United States that is giving advice about when people should undergo things like mammograms or prostate screenings or other types of preventive screening tests. Because right now, a lot of the recommendations come from the American College of Radiology, which has a financial incentive. Yeah, so let's talk about that specific example, right, with mammograms. And again, you would not believe this. My wife got a letter in the mail yesterday, opened it this morning, right, from the radiology uh, department referencing mammograms, recommending once a year, right? So, so what does the U.S. Preventive you know, Health Force say about that? So my wife has no risk, uh, no history of breast cancer in her family, no high-risk factors that would indicate that she should get a mammogram. The U.S. Preventive Services Task Force recommends that women under age 50 are not recommended to get a mammogram. And that's based on their independent analysis of the evidence, looking at the best studies and saying, what's the benefit versus the risk for women who have no risk who are in this age category? Well, my wife has been low risk, but her her doctors are still recommending that she get a mammogram. And when she tells them, hey, I'm trying to follow the guidelines of the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, they actually give her the stink eye. They tell her, well, you know, there's a lot of other uh, experts who would say that you should get mammograms every year. Yeah, so, no, so no we, that's that, that's what the recommendation was, annual. And I think that, going to what you said earlier, is profit versus profiteering. Right. And, and that, to me, feels like profiteering. Right, right. And and it's, it's, ju- it's easy for them to justify because they can say, well, we're just concerned about women's health. I mean, we just want to make sure that people are protected from getting breast cancer. Well, that sounds really good until you also weigh on the other side, the number of false positives that come from mammograms, the invasive procedures that are a result of that. There is great harm that can come from false positives from mammograms. And so, you know, I feel a little, you know, it's a little odd for us as a couple of guys to be talking about this because it's not <laughs> our typical our typical thing. But I, I just encourage people, look at the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force they have the, the independent expert-based guidelines and those that independence is more valuable and has more integrity than the other experts who might be making their money based on doing these different types of tests and procedures. Yeah, I thought it was a, it was a great, great recommendation, you know, in there because, um, and, and I can mention another example that happened with my daughter, but um, the, the key question there is that I love that you had in there is what happens if we wait? Yeah. Right? And, and that's something that will stick with me. And that's something that I will use, you know, personally. So the, the third part of the book focuses on employers and, and what strategies they can employ to, to prevent being taken advantage of. And lots of great examples in there. You, you gave the state of Montana. That's a good one. And it was actually two of my team members um, here in California right. that helped them with their, their PBM change. That's right. Um, so I, I want to talk, I want to talk about fraud for a second. And we, we alluded to this earlier in the conversation, but you write that insurance companies promote themselves as guardians of healthcare dollars and tout their fraud and analytic capabilities. And you wrote a series of articles about this. So tell us what you've actually found to be the truth in, in practice over the last couple of years with your investigative reporting. Well, let me tell you a story about a personal trainer in Texas named David Williams. This was the most incredible story. Maybe it's hard to say the most absurd story I've ever done, but this one really, really ranks high on the list. I I learned about this from an insider. You know, I talked to lots of insiders and I, I love people who work in the industry because there are a lot of great people in the industry trying to bring about change for the good. And I was talking to this person about fraud and they told me, 
I, I, and I ask people, Hey, what do you think I should write about? You know, like I'm no genius. I mean, I'm just some dude doing journalism, depending on other people to tell me what I should write about. Right. And so I think critically and I learn a lot and I filter all this information and I frame it so that it's an interesting story, but I'm just dependent on people who know telling me. So this person tells me, I think you should write about this issue in fraud where Medicare gives out NPI numbers to anybody who applies for them. And the NPI number is the national provider identifier. That's the fundamental thing that everybody needs to bill insurance companies, to bill Medicare, to, mm-hmm. to bill everybody. That's your, if you're a doctor or a hospital, you have an NPI and you bill with that NPI. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, anybody could apply for an NPI right now with Medicare and they don't verify any of the information on applications and they will give you an NPI online within minutes. So I could, I could apply for an NPI today and Medicare would give me one. That's right. (laughs) That's right. So I said, that's crazy. Are you kidding me? I, I had no idea. I said, well, can you ever think of an example where this happened that I could write about? And this person told me, well, check out this David Williams case in the state of Texas, which had recently been prosecuted. And so the great thing about a prosecuted case that went to trial is that it it contained a massive trove of data of internal documents and correspondence between David Williams who is now in prison for committing this fraud based on creating false NPI or real NPI numbers saying he was a doctor when he wasn't. So this guy was a personal trainer, created NPI numbers as if he was a medical doctor and then started billing for level 5 office visits to United, Aetna, Cigna, and other insurance companies. Mm -hmm. And in the testimony, in the trial, and in the depositions, they had the head of investigations for Aetna, Cigna, and United. Mm -hmm. All of them said, we ought to adjudicate all of our claims. 96% or more of the claims are auto adjudicated. They're not looking at them as long as it has an NPI on it. And by the way, the insurance companies are not verifying the NPI numbers either. It is so easy to verify a a doctor's identity. It's ridiculous. I do it all the time. You go on the medical board's website. It also, you can download the the list of, of licensed doctors in every state. So insurance companies are not even verifying that the NPIs that are submitted to them are actual doctors. And, 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 and these guys, and these guys said that they, they testified, they're like, we auto adjudicate 87%. And as a result, we're just not looking at it. They're just not looking at it. They're just paying the bill. It gets submitted. They pay it. It gets submitted. They pay it. And I know this is counterintuitive because they're also denying care for people. Right? So there are things that they flag. There are some cases they flag, but they are auto adjudicating 90, 95% or more of these cases. Okay, so then this didn't go on. Again, this guy wasn't a criminal mastermind. He used his actual name. He used his actual address. He applied for 20 NPI numbers and he used all of them and he got caught. So this went on for four years. After about a year of this, he got caught by the insurance companies. Well, remember how I said that the customer is always right, but we aren't the customers? The doctors are the customers of the insurance companies. The hospitals are the customers. The insurance companies do not want to crack down on doctors. So what they did, they didn't say, hey, dude, you're not a you're not a doctor and we are filing criminal charges against you. What they said was they sent him a letter and said, hey, it's come to our attention that you aren't qualified. You're not a medical doctor, so you're not qualified to build these procedures. And so we need you to repay us the money that we have paid you. And if you don't repay us, we're going to dock your future payments to recoup the money you owe us. So think about <laughs> the logic one. of that one. What a joke. What a joke. What a joke. It's a template letter. They're not even reading their own mail. They're not even customizing the form letter to make sure it's accurate because they're telling the guy in the same letter, they say, you're not a doctor, so we shouldn't have paid you. Now you need to repay us. And if you don't, we're going to dock your future payments from us. Needless to say, this guy billed these three insurance companies over the span of four years for about $25 million. He got paid about $4 million. And eventually, finally, someone, one of the companies reported him to the FBI, and now he's in federal prison. But this was just one of the stories I did that showed just how much they don't do to protect our money. Yeah. And I think the the crazy thing about all that is after all of these companies 
figured out there was fraud going on. One, they did nothing to stop it. And only when the law enforcement got involved and is reported to the FBI, did the FBI actually do something about it. But if I recall correctly, I don't know that it was the insurance company that reported it to the FBI. I don't think it was. Well, the, the guy's um, ex-wife and her dad were also right. reporting him over and over again to, to the authorities and to the Texas Department of Insurance and to the insurance companies. So they were being called the whole time, being told that this guy was doing this and they, it still didn't get stopped. Yeah. This is well, like Keystone Cop stuff. No, it's it's a wild story. I encourage, I actually have links to, to your articles on my website. So for folks listening to this, if you want to check out those articles, they are listed on the Reconstructing Healthcare website. So the, the point for employers though, is that you need to get a third party vendor who has expertise in claims data review to be reviewing your payments. If you're not doing that, you could have a lot of money being sucked out of the system by fraud. And one of the things that, that, employers need to be aware of is a lot of TPAs and insurance companies, they actually have services where they will go out after the claim has been paid and try to find claims that have been paid incorrectly and then get some of that money back. But then they take 30% of it as a fee. So talk about adding insult to injury, like, oh, we processed this incorrectly, but we realized it on the back end and we were able to get some of that money back, but we're going to charge you 30% of what we recovered back. Right. And, and that's, that's, you want to make sure you're not getting overcharged on those recoveries and also make sure it's an independent vendor that's doing this analysis for you. If it's, if it's United healthcare and they go, Oh, we have this service we provide. Well, then they pay themselves a massive (laughs) fee and they don't want to be playing hardball with their doctors and hospitals. That's right. Your insurance plan is conflicted. So make sure you go to an independent vendor who will advocate for what's right for you and your members, not protecting the insurance company. Absolutely. So you end the book with an analogy about standing up to a bully. So I think we, we, we've identified who the bully is here, which is the healthcare system. And in a lot of ways, the you know, traditional insurance carriers. How do you think we're doing as payers of standing up to the bully today? How do you define payer? Because people use that term in different ways. Employers. Okay. So the employers and the employees, how are we doing? Well, the the employers, I would say right now, have been feeding their employees to the wolves. They have not been equipping them by helping them become literate and understanding how the healthcare system works. And in large part, that's because the employers don't know how the health system works. I mean, they're trying to run a business, right? They're not engaged on this. And by the way, their HR people are not engaged on it either. And I I hate to say this, but like I I called SHRM, the Society of Human Resources Management, when I was doing a lot of these stories. These people don't have a clue. I mean, there's no one at SHRM. And I tried because I called them multiple times and I pressed them to please, will you please get me an expert? Somebody at SHRM must understand how working Americans and employers are getting taken advantage of. Sherm could not provide me with anybody. And then look at who's sponsoring the conferences for a lot of these business groups and a lot of these associations, United Healthcare, Aetna, Cigna, Optum, Express Scripts. They're funded by the industry that is supposedly serving them, but is actually just taking advantage of them. And so That's I think right. people need to be a little savvier. I'm, I'm really urging them. So how are, how are they doing Again, I want to be kind. I don't, I don't want to be too hard on them because I know they're trying to run a business, but they have been passing these costs onto their employees and their employees can't bear it anymore. And so with, with the book, I'm trying to start a brush fire at the grassroots level so the employees get educated. And so the employees can go to their HR department and go to their CFO and say, hey, what are we doing What's our company doing to do this? I would like to do things a little differently so that my deductible doesn't have to be $5,000 a year. And, and, and even to give the CFOs and the CEOs and the HR people the, the, the leverage they need internally to encourage their, their bosses and other decision makers to take these things more seriously. This is a catastrophe what we're dealing with here. People are being broken, bankrupted financially. And if we don't push back, no one else is coming to our rescue. The politicians have had decades to figure this out. Everyone wants to argue about high level policy decisions. Meanwhile, on the ground, 
your working Americans, your employees are just getting destroyed by these financial costs. So I, I'm kind of saying, you know, employers and employees have a lot of power we haven't used yet. They haven't really understood the power that they have, and they yeah. haven't had the courage to use it. I'm trying to equip and inspire people to push back and, and win, and they can win. I love it. I love it. Well, I, I thought the book was great. Uh, I encourage everyone you know, listening to this podcast to, to check it out. Marshall, just to wrap up here, if there was one question that I should have asked you, but I didn't, what would it be? Well, I wanted to mention too, that this has launched a side business for me that I'm calling Allen Health Academy. And I'm actually creating a series of videos, 15 or so short three to five minute videos that explain these principles that are in the book. And I want to roll those out to employer-sponsored health plans so that employees can get all this education in about an hour time. And they can get a certification, like a never pay certification. And then they can have that, that base level of knowledge about the way the healthcare system works. And I'm then coupling that, I'm bundling it with the book. So the book is like a reference guide. I, I don't expect that every employee is going to want to read a book. But yep. they can have the book as a reference guide and they can be urged or incentivized by their health plan to complete the curriculum. I'm, I'm on a real health literacy kick now, now that I've gathered this material, put it together. And, and again, I just want to roll it out to employers all over the country. So for information about that, go to my website, marshallallen.com mm -hmm. and sign up for my newsletter. And then you'll, you'll be updated on kind of the latest things with that curriculum. I love it. I love it. Well, uh, Marshall, on behalf of our listeners, uh, I want to thank you for taking time out of your schedule to talk to us about the book. It's been a great uh, conversation and, and I'm sure it's been informative to our listeners. Thank you so much. It's an honor for me to talk to you. All right. And to our listeners, we hope you enjoyed this episode of Reconstructing Healthcare. And with that, we'll sign off wherever you're at. We hope you have a great day and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Reconstructing Healthcare. If you like what you heard here, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. If you're interested in continuing the conversation, please visit us at www.reconstructinghealthcare.com where you can access the show notes for this episode and links to Marshall Allen's website and contact information. Lastly, be sure to check out some of the free resources on our website, including links to recent articles and books, including a link to Marshall Allen's book, Never Pay the First Bill and Other Ways to Fight the Healthcare System and Win. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time on the Reconstructing Healthcare Podcast.